We're going to be looking in the scripture this morning at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, you can go ahead and turn there, please. Thank God that we can be back at Eden in person, not in Skype. We're very thankful for that, and uh, if I cut out this morning, you know something's bad wrong. It's not just an internet outage. I'm eager to look into God's Word and share with you from that this morning. After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his followers, teaching them about his kingdom, and specifically about the role that they would fill in his kingdom following his imminent departure. And that role would be apostles, people commissioned directly by Christ, with the task of discipling the nations, proclaiming to them the lordship of Christ over every sphere, his grace and his forgiveness, and leading this newly formed people, the church, to live in the light of this glorious reality, this gospel. And the book of Acts records the initial attempts of those, of those apostles, their initial attempts at carrying out this task, their successes, the opposition that they met with in various places. And in the book of Acts, more than any other one apostle, Paul gets the attention. Uh, So we have there the the Acts, which are frequently uh, referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And I think that's a legitimate way to refer to that book in our Bibles. They are, humanly speaking, the main character. It's what they did in the power of God's Spirit. But there is another major character, in addition to the apostles, that we find throughout the book of Acts. And that would simply be the, those who heard that message and responded to that message in various ways. And so throughout the book of Acts and then the subsequent epistles that we find in our New Testament, we see the apostles and the recipients of the message, these two characters. And we today, living almost 2,000 years afterward, can identify and should identify with both of these characters in different ways. Everyone here from our, our pastors, our, our ordained elders who are formally recognized as leaders, to our deacons, to our congregation at large, men, women, children, everyone here can identify with these first century recipients because we too are recipients of this message. We simply stand further down the line, having been passed for two millennia now. Our leaders here have a special identification with those first century apostles, as those who are uh, in a special way given the task of communicating the truth of the gospel, of leading in the church that Christ is building. But even we as a congregation at large can also identify not just with the recipients of the message, 
not just with the believers at Thessalonica, at Colossae, at Corinth, but also we as a congregation at large can identify with those apostolic proclaimers of the message. In what way can we, who are not formally recognized elders or missionaries or pastors, in what way can we also identify with those first century apostles? How do we identify with Paul? Well, we're going to see this in just a moment toward the end of 1 Thessalonians 1, that there is a flow of the gospel message and that that flow is continuous. It doesn't stop. It doesn't reach an end point where we say, okay, the gospel stops here and there's nowhere else for it to go. But rather, the flow as we see it in Acts and in the epistles and right here in chapter 1 goes something like this. It starts with God and Christ who reveal this message to the apostles in the first century with with Paul kind of taking the lead. And those apostles then relay this message to the churches, those first century listeners like uh, the Thessalonians. And then we see in 1 Thessalonians 1 that those early believers continued to relay this message on to other observers. And the strong implication throughout the New Testament is that those other observers continue the relay. And so we can come to passages like the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and say, yes, that was directly addressed to those first 11 followers of Christ who were given a special authority but it is also in a very real way directly applicable to every believer. We stand in succession 2,000 years as it went from Thessalonica throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and the church history books can tell us how it went from there to another place, to another place, and to another place, and here it is in Burnsville, Minnesota. And the implication is, it's not to stop here, it's to continue. So, what we as, a, as believers in general read concerning the Apostle Paul and his gospel ministry in Acts and here in 1 Thessalonians and other letters is applicable to us at large. And, and Paul actually seems to organize the first three chapters of this letter with these two characters in mind, the apostles and the recipients, Paul and the church. He, he goes back and forth for three chapters, focusing on himself and his, his company, then focusing on the church there in Thessalonica. And particularly in these three chapters, Paul points to both characters together as a basis for his joy, as a basis for his thanksgiving to God for the successful ministry that he experienced there in Thessalonica. So, if Paul is talking about successful ministry, and if we at large, not just our elders here, But if we, as believers in general, are 
to identify even with those great apostles, then we would do well to pay careful attention when these apostles speak about effective ministry. This is pertinent not just for the preachers, not just for the missionaries, but for all who stand in line receiving this message, this 2,000-year-old message. And so I'd like for us to look at chapter 1 this morning, work our way through the chapter, and pay careful attention to these two characters, Paul the Apostle and the Thessalonian recipients of his message. And I want us to note how their actions and attitudes contributed to effective ministry, ministry that was not in vain. So let's begin by reading uh, the first few verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And now Paul offers thanks to God as he so often does at the beginning of his letters for the signs of grace that he sees in the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, why is Paul thankful for them? Well, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then as he goes on in verse 4, he mentions an additional reason for thanksgiving, an additional reason for his joy as he thinks about the Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know that he has chosen you. What that statement, meditate on that for, for a moment. How can Paul make a statement like that. We know that God has elected you. We have studied the scriptural teaching here on election, on God's sovereign choice to bestow his grace on whom he chooses. He's free to do that. How can Paul then say, I know that you're one of those, that you here in this church are one of God's chosen. Did Paul have some special access to the secret counsels of God from eternity past? I mean, he's an apostle. Maybe he did have special access. Maybe God specially revealed, these folks right here are elect from eternity past. Is that what's going on? Because you and I don't have that. Does this mean that we probably, we can't make this kind of a statement as we seek to minister the gospel? This would be perhaps one way in which we can't pattern our ministry after the Apostle Paul. I mean, he got in on the secret counsels of God here, and we can't do that. I would like to be able to know this as a minister of the gospel, but but can we? And I would argue that, yes, we can, in certain situations, speak, follow Paul's example in speaking like this to the people that we 
minister to. And I think that's the case because as we continue reading, we will see the basis that Paul gives for that statement is something that's measurable, it's something that is repeatable, and it's by no means exclusive to those first century apostles. So, what is the basis for this statement? I thank God because I know that you are chosen by Him. Well, His basis for that statement is twofold here in chapter 1. The first basis focuses on that first character that I mentioned, the apostle himself, verse 5. And then the second basis focuses on the recipient of the gospel, verses 6 through 10. So in verse 5, we see that the content of Paul's message, the manner of his presentation of the message, and the lifestyle that accompanied the message gave Paul confidence about the effectiveness of his ministry among the Thessalonians. And so, when we see a faithful gospel minister whose life and work is characterized by holiness and love, as Paul goes on to describe his life, whose ministry is characterized by the power of the Spirit, as Paul will tell us in verse 5, then we can make general predictions regarding the effectiveness of that person's ministry. Not because that, that person is so awesome in himself, but because the gospel that he's ministering is so awesome, is so powerful. And so when it flows through a clear channel, we can expect good things to happen. But that's not the only basis for Paul's confident assertion here in verse 4. That's one basis. He says, my, my lifestyle, my manner of ministry gives me confidence that my ministry was effective and not empty. But that's not the only basis because we see sometimes in the book of Acts even, certainly we see in church history and we see in our own ministries that at times we are following a Pauline pattern, if you will. We are living holy lives. We are uh, ministering not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit, faithfully communicating the good news, and it appears to be in vain. There's nothing, no evidence that the people we seek to win are responding. There's nothing that leads us to say, you're one of God's chosen. And Paul himself, in other letters, will express grave concern that his own ministry might be fruitless. He uses that phrase, in vain. He will use it later in chapters 2 and 3 talking about his work in Thessalonica. Paul was very concerned that he expend himself and have nothing to show for it in the lives of those that hurt him. And so that's a real possibility, and Paul was deeply concerned about that possibility in his own work. And so we shift the focus, as Paul does, in verses 6 through 10, from Paul the messenger 
to the Thessalonians who received that message. And their response to that message is vital. They received it as a message from God, not from man. They received it in certain circumstances, which we just read about in Acts 17. And these things together lead to confidence that Paul's work there was not in vain. And so he could say, you are brothers loved by God, chosen by God. And so I want us now to look in more detail at these two characters. Verse 5, the apostle. Verses 6 through 10, the recipients of the gospel. And flesh out the significance of these two characters for our own situation, both as recipients and as ministers of the gospel. So verse 5, let's read the first part of verse 5. Paul tells how he's so confident. Because, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does it mean that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, the Spirit, and in full conviction? We've got to figure that out because as gospel ministers, that's what we want. God forbid that we do what Paul here is saying didn't happen that we minister the gospel only in word. So what does it mean that it was ministered in power and in the Spirit and with full conviction or assurance? Well, if we compare Paul's other letters, if we look at Acts, I think we could summarize it very briefly as referring to miracles that accompanied his preaching, that came from the Spirit, It refers to the Spirit's power to call people, to convict them, to give them light, to assure them, to comfort them, to transform them. All of these activities which are the work of the Spirit and not of man. And Paul says, my ministry was characterized by that kind of power in the Spirit. So, the question is, how can we as gospel ministers have confidence that we are ministering not merely words, but also in the Spirit's power? How do we know that? Are we in danger of ministering merely words? And I think the answer is evident if we could take time to survey the New Test, even the Old Testament, you can see, but particularly in the New Testament, with the Gospels, the life of Christ, even the work of his apostles there in the Gospels, particularly the book of Acts, and then throughout Paul's writings, this very close connection between prayer and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Between prayer and the work of the Spirit as he emboldens his servants to speak words. I want us just to note a few examples of this. 
my prayer for us this morning, one of my major concerns, is that this connection between prayer and the powerful ministry of the Spirit would sink into us and would begin to affect the way we minister the gospel. So I'm going to share with us six passages. I'm going to read them with very brief comment. There are scores of others. These are taken almost at random. They're so abundant. But our time limits us. So note this connection between prayer and the Spirit, between prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. Go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. We read, When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. If you're like me, you have some questions about what exactly was going on there. What does that mean? And I don't have all the answers, and that's not our point this morning. The point is simply note that close connection. It's while Jesus is praying that the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1 We see the day of Pentecost arrives, and they, those early followers of Jesus, were all together in one place on the day of Pentecost. The first Pentecost after Christ had risen and ascended. And what were they doing? Well, if we go back to the two preceding chapters, Acts chapter 1 and then Luke 24, we find that they were waiting you remember Jesus had ascended or had risen. He commissioned them to go and make disciples. And then he told them, somewhat counterintuitively, he said, wait, don't go yet. Waiting is part of the vocabulary of prayer. We noted briefly in Bible class this morning that when we pray, we're not doing anything. We're doing nothing, so to speak. We're waiting on God. And so Jesus is telling him, you wait. Wait for what? Wait for the gift that the Father promised, that the prophets of old have been promising for hundreds of years. Namely, wait for power to come down from heaven. What does that mean? It means very clearly in the context, the Holy Spirit. So you pray and wait. And so then we get back to Acts chapter 1, And in verse 14, we read, All these, these first disciples, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in that context, Acts chapter 2, what momentous event occurs in the history of God's salvation? He pours out his spirit on sons and daughters, to prophesy, to give the message of the gospel. So again, lots of questions about what exactly, how did that work there at Pentecost? We don't have all the answers to that. What we do know is Scripture makes a tight connection between prayer and the ministry of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. Just a couple chapters later, Acts chapter 4 Verses 31 and 32. And when they had prayed, what were they praying? Their prayer was this. Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word 
Notice the connection there between prayer and the speaking of the word. With all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That was their prayer. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to do what? To speak the word of God with boldness. They weren't speaking merely words. They were filled with the Holy Spirit to speak these words. We move into Paul's letters, Ephesians 6. He speaks of the spiritual battle in which every believer is engaged. And he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. And also pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Do you see that connection again? Pray for words of proclamation. Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4. Pray for us that, the, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Prayer is the means by which God in His Spirit receives the glory rather than the human speaker. When we pray, we are not accomplishing anything, but the Spirit of God is doing His work through our prayers. And so, Prayer is the distinguishing factor between a ministry that is in word only and one that is also in power and in the Spirit and with full conviction. Prayer is what transforms the one into the other. And gospel ministry that is not saturated in prayer is like, it's certainly going to be ineffective ministry. It's going to be, to use Paul's phrasing, in vain. There's going to be nothing lasting to show for it. It is possible. In fact, it's very easy. I speak from experience to, for, for a preacher, for a teacher of the Scripture to spend our after prayerless hour, studying, preparing lectures, preparing sermons and lessons. And this kind of practice puts us in grave danger of ministering in word only, a ministry that will be in vain. And Paul says, mine was not like that. It was characterized by the Spirit's power. That is, it was a ministry bathed in prayer for effectiveness. Paul goes on, though, in the rest of verse 5 to tell us that not only did he have the correct content, I mean, it was a ministry in word. He's not disavowing the use of words. It was that. But he also had the power of the Spirit. And now... He says there was a lifestyle in the messenger that complemented the message. Look at 
the second half of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. If we go on into chapters 2 and 3, Paul's going to speak about his conduct there in Thessalonica. He says it's holy, it was holy, righteous, and blameless. It was full of love and affection toward my listeners. In other words, Paul is concerned both about the, the ministry of the word and the lifestyle of the messenger. And we see this dual concern elsewhere in Paul's writings. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he exhorts Timothy, pay close attention to two things, to yourself and to your teaching. When Paul is outlining for Timothy and for Titus, the qualifications of a formally recognized overseer in the church, it's interesting that the majority of those qualifications deal not so much with his intellectual abilities and skills, but with his lifestyle. Paul was very concerned about the life that accompanied the message. This makes perfect sense, doesn't it? How many, how many uh, teenagers have been jaded because and have grown up to leave the faith, and the reason was not so much because they, they grow up in a Christian home, perhaps, and they leave the faith not so much because they found the gospel to be intellectually unconvincing, but much more so because they perhaps received the gospel from a father whose treatment of his mother just didn't line up with everything else I've been told about the way Christ treats his church, just diametrically opposed. Or a mother whose, whose lifestyle doesn't match with what she is telling this child. Or just people in the church generally who fall away from, from the faith Again, not primarily because their pastors failed to present the truth of Scripture accurately enough. Okay? They, they did that, but rather because they had seen one too many pastors or leaders whose lives were characterized by corruption, uh, characterized by these kinds of things. And it didn't match up with the words that were being spoken week after week. With our words, we are declaring the good news. That Christ is better than, you fill in the blank, but with our actions, are we declaring something different? And Paul says, no. I believed, I declared the glory of Christ and my life matched up to that. I think uh, here in our audience we are uh, a well-trained, biblically educated group by comparison perhaps to some other congregations. We have seminary students here uh, who give themselves to the study of Scripture 
And I have a special that resonates with me personally. I've done that myself, and I love that. But we are being called to be careful that we pay attention not only to the teaching, but to ourselves, that we not neglect the one as we give ourselves to the other. So, verse 5 is telling us that we as believers... Believers generally, who identify with Paul, the apostle, we are being called to embrace this apostolic role, if if I can use that term, to embrace it by communicating the gospel verbally. Again, Paul doesn't say, I didn't use words. He says, I did use words, and they were accurate words. But we must also communicate the gospel spiritually with a capital S spirit, in the power of the spirit through prayer. And then thirdly, communicate the gospel. I wrote down sincerely or holistically. Our lives are not detracting from what our words declare. And we we could continue on, particularly through chapters 2 and 3, to to look at additional instruction from Paul as a model of gospel ministry, both in the manner of his proclamation and in his lifestyle. Paul goes on to say that he ministered through persecution with joy. And we could take that to heart. He says he set his eye solely on God and seeking God's approval, not the, the approval of man, and that led him to be fearless in the face of persecution. We could certainly take that to heart. He goes on to describe his affection and love for the listeners. He loved them the way a nursing mother loves her child. He loved them the way a teaching father instructs his son. And we could take all these things to heart as we seek to minister the gospel effectively, but we're going to limit ourselves to chapter 1. And as we continue, we find Paul shifting the focus from himself to the recipients of the message. So this successful ministry first included certain things, attitudes and actions in the minister, but it also included certain things in the recipient, verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6, the first part. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That sounds good. In what way? There are all kinds of ways in which the people of God would do well to imitate Paul as well as Jesus. But Paul highlights one specific way here, and he's going to harp on this particular way throughout these two letters to to the church in Thessalonica. Verse 6b, the second part, says, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's how they followed Paul's example. They believed the gospel, they received the word, while being persecuted, and they were glad all at the same time. That is a good sign for the minister of the gospel when he sees that. That is very reassuring. That is a good indication that his work is not empty work. I think of when I was, I've been struck over the past two years 
at how the First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, but especially First Thessalonians, is so appropriate for the church in a brand new location where the gospel has just reached in places like where, where we get to live in Cambodia. Uh, less than two years ago, the gospel first reached this small Tampuan village, one of the tribal minorities, and it was born almost overnight. Twenty people embrace the gospel and are baptized, and the church is born. And about six months before, three or four months before we came back to uh, America, one of these believers, uh, who is one of the earliest ones to believe, his name is Chin, he called me on the phone and he said, uh, my, he and his wife are believers, he said, my father-in-law is threatening to end the marriage if I don't give up Christianity, me and my wife, and leave the church. And I said, wow, Chin, does he have, in your culture, does he have the authority to do that? And he said, oh, definitely, he can do that. And so I began to try to encourage and, uh, th- this brother who's being afflicted. And he said, no, we're, we're not even considering that. We, we have come to Christ. And in so many words, Chin told me, to whom shall we go? We are, we are God's people. And when I, when I see that kind of reception of the gospel message with persecution and with joy, then I, as the gospel minister, respond with great confidence. And I can say, Jen, you are elect of God. The work that's been done by, by other missionaries in your behalf is not in vain. And we praise God for this. We thank God following Paul's example. In our American context, we don't typically have to worry about that particular type of affliction or persecution. But just think about this. When you follow the example of the Thessalonians that we just read in Acts 17, and when you say, there is another king, Jesus, When you say that here, right here in in Minnesota, when you say that this King Jesus is king over every realm, this King Jesus is the creator and thus the rightful Lord of all men and women. And when you follow that through and say this King Jesus has the right to tell me how to live, he's got the right to tell me what to do and what not to do. Can you see where I'm going with this? Just think about what, what's the big story. What are the big stories in the news right now? I mean, I read ESPN, and it's on ESPN. This king has the right to tell me about my sexuality and what I may and may not do with it. And he's the Lord. So say that in our culture, and you will sooner or later, probably sooner, be the recipient of wrath from the prevailing cultural, uh, from the prevailing culture. And so when we see Christians, people coming to Christ and saying, yes, I'm going to listen to the Lord of all things, and I'm going to pattern my life 
after his words. That sets them in certain points in direct opposition to the prevailing culture. And they will face serious opposition. And when they say, to whom shall I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. Then we can say, praise God, this ministry is not in vain. On the other hand, I think about our, our work in Cambodia. Kind of the opposite of my brother Chin. When we see, I shared this with, with you in the Bible class earlier this morning, when we see people flocking to a church or some gospel presentation because, or, 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 and there is significant financial remuneration that goes along with it, or some other tangible benefit, or when they sign up for this Bible training program that's held at the beach resort where we're wined and dined, and I, I, I say, oh God, I pray that there is sincere faith. But I, you can't help but wonder, right? But when I see my brother Chin, who gets nothing for becoming a Christian except for persecution, except for joy in the Holy Spirit, then I could say that is effective ministry. That's ministry that worked. And so this is, first of all, an exhortation to us to persevere in our faith with joy as we are going are and will continue to face the opposition of the world, knowing that as we do so, we are partaking of Christ, we're partaking of the great body of saints throughout the church's history that have suffered in His name. So this is an exhortation to us, persevere as they did. Keep believing through persecution with joy, but it's also an exhortation for us to pray for the people that we seek to share the gospel with. Pray for them that they would persevere as well. Think of what they are facing. Pray for those Cambodians. They're an extreme minority. The, the, the Christian Cambodians. An extreme minority who are viewed in many ways as disloyal to their country because they have gone and gotten into a Western man's religion. Pray for them. Pray for your neighbors and your co-workers that you're seeking to bring to Christ, who they find your faith to be countercultural and really just too big a pill to swallow. And, and so I, I want to exhort or uh, address those here today who have not bought in, if I, if I can use that phrase, who have not been joined to Christ through faith. And you're, in one sense, you're an outsider that doesn't quite get it. Why would someone continue to embrace this faith while he's being persecuted? Furthermore, how could he have joy in that? And that's your question this morning. I simply invite you to come and taste and see. 
come to Jesus and, and taste him as he is given to us in the word and as you meet him in the, the, his body, the church. And we pray for you that he would open your eyes to see his beauty and to see that he is all glorious and worth whatever affliction comes from embracing him. The joy will outweigh the sorrow. So these believers followed Paul and Jesus' example by embracing the message in affliction with joy. And then notice what happened when they did this. They themselves ended up filling the role of Paul the Apostle. Look at verse 7 all the way to the end. So that, so here's the result of their reception, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They had worked the apostle out of a job. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Back in verse 5 when the focus was on Paul, we saw that the, the minister's words when accompanied by the Spirit's power, and a holy life, that makes for effective ministry. That's one ingredient that leads us to be confident that the ministry will bear fruit. And so now, as the focus is shifted to the recipients, we see that when the hearers of the gospel receive it, accompanied by persecution and joy, that lends credibility. That lends persuasion to the message. It suggests that this is real. This gospel is true. When you see people who are so eager to embrace Christ that they, they will suffer for it, you say, wow, something must be going on. When you see people who embrace Christ because it gets them some kind of financial benefit, you're just not sure at best. But that's not what's happening here in Thessalonians. And so these last three verses, verses 7 through 10, catch every one of us, whether, whether you are on full-time paid staff with a seminary degree ordained as a minister, or whether... Uh, you're an eight-year-old child who believes and follows Jesus. The gospel began with Christ. The message flowed to the apostles. It continued to the Thessalonian church and to other first-century churches, and it has continued to other observers, and then it continued and it's landed here. And now Paul is exhorting us that we would minister that gospel further, following his example, 
following the example of the saints who went before us, these Thessalonians. So as those who have accepted this gospel, we have become characters in this story which the Bible relates. We identify first with the New Testament church, but also with the apostles and the prophets who labored with Christ to lay that foundation. And as such, may we continue to receive the gospel through suffering with joy. And then may we labor to minister that gospel in word as well as in the power of the Spirit and in holy living. As we go to prayer now, I would like to ask if, if two of our pastors could close this time in prayer. Um, perhaps, Pastor Miller, if you would close, could you take up that Pauline example there in verse 5 as one who ministered not only in word, but in the Spirit's power and with a holy life, and ask that God would increasingly make us into that kind of minister. And then, uh, John, would you lead us in praying, following verses 6 through 10, that we as recipients would receive the message in persecution and joy, and that those that we minister to might also. And as such, this would be a ministry, Eden Baptist Church, that carries out the work of the gospel not in vain, but in the power of the Spirit. Could we do that? Thank you. Let's join our hearts in prayer. We ask, Lord, in behalf of this congregation particularly, though we pray for all of your people throughout the world and the churches that uphold your truth, we pray for this church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be declared accurately, that the truth would be sounded, that the message would be clear, that we would not pull parts of it away so that it would be more culturally acceptable. But I pray that the gospel would come in word that is accurate. We pray as well that it would come in the power of the Spirit through prayer. I ask that as a congregation we might receive the conviction of the Spirit on this very point, that we might be gathering routinely as a church and gathering routinely in smaller groups and very faithfully praying that you would work through your spirit in the lives of those who hear the message and in the lives of those who proclaim it. I ask that there would be a spirit-empowered dissemination of the gospel, and we even now are so praying that you would do what you alone can do to open the eyes of the blind to see the light of the glory of Christ in the gospel. We pray for this power of the Spirit, this conviction that would come through the Spirit's witness of the message, 
We pray as well, Father, that we would be faithful then as messengers and that the purity of this church would ever be nurtured and developed, that we would continue to grow in faith and grow in faithfulness, that our lives might demonstrate the transformation of the gospel. I pray that this congregation would so grow in the joy of the Lord, that that joy would evidence itself and emanate from our lives and be itself that which would cause thirst and draw others to Christ. May our message be in this power. May our message be adorned by lives that demonstrate the transformation of the gospel. We ask you to do this work among us for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Father, as recipients of this message, of this gospel, which we have so graciously been provided, we pray on behalf of each one here that we would receive indeed this message even in much affliction, but indeed with joy. And we pray for our brothers and sisters across this globe who indeed, even as we've heard in, in the sermon here this morning, who, who indeed even now experience affliction as a result of their, their trust that they place in this word. And we ask that you would give courage and perseverance to them that you would give courage and perseverance to us. We here who have indeed been recipients of this glorious gospel, we ask that you would grant us, the, again, the perseverance to accept and receive this word in much affliction, and that we would likewise evidence in our ways of thinking and our ways of speaking to one another and our ways of living out this gospel in our world, that we would evidence the joy that we have in the Holy Spirit. The joy that flows from a, a, an awareness of the hope that we have of eternal life. And may that joy show itself then in the examples of life that we bring with us as we leave here and as we minister among, uh, with one another, that indeed the Spirit's uh, fruit would be evident as we interact with one another and as we interact with our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers, and those who are watching our lives, that there would be an evident awareness that we do not serve the gods of this world, but that we do indeed desire to serve you, the King, our true King. And that, Father, as this acknowledgement may very well bring about disdain and persecution from our world, we pray that as recipients of this truth, 
We pray for courage. We pray for faithfulness and perseverance in the faith and that the joy of the Spirit would indeed be evident as we seek to be faithful to the gospel that you've called us to proclaim, the gospel that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.